I feel like I'm pretty hot here. Is that... I can kind of sense it. Okay. Psalm uh, 19. Psalm 19 speaks of God's Word in verse 7. It says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Reviving the soul and rejoicing the heart. And I imagine that there are some of us here today who come here this morning maybe fearing, feeling weary, feeling down, um, maybe, maybe just feeling ap- somewhat apathetic. And Scripture promises, one of the promises of Scripture is that Scripture is something that can revive our, our soul and cause our heart to rejoice. And I think that's what our passage is here for today especially. And so let's pray that, that God would use His Word this morning, our time in the Word, to revive our souls. God, we thank You already as we've reflected on in song, songs that so beautifully capture the wonder and the mystery of what it is that You, before all eternity, in Your threefold Godhead, devised a plan to send Your Son to become a human being for all eternity for the sake of humans, for the sake of taking on our predicament and dying in our place. Help help us this morning as we look at the account of His birth as a human being to attend well to what this passage means and what You intend to communicate to us through it. And help us to walk away more appreciative of what Christ has done for us on our behalf in living lives fueled by a passion for His glory as we spread that message to others. Amen. So today, as as Matt read, we'll be in Luke 2, Luke 2, 1 through 20. And this is a very familiar passage to most of us, I would imagine. Um, If you've grown up in the church, or even if you haven't, and maybe you've only attended church once a year or something like that, it was oftentimes around Christmas, and if you've been in a play at Christmas as a child, or any any sort of uh, accompaniment to the church around Christmas time, you've probably heard this passage a zillion times, and there's some dangers that come with that. One, on the one hand, we can become so familiar to this passage. Uh, my wife and I, we recently bought a house, and for the first time in our marriage, uh, we have a garage, we have a laundry machine, um, we had a dishwasher for a, like a very short time when we were first married, um, but now we actually have a dishwasher again after approximately seven years or so. And these are things that are like quite exciting at first because we're like, we can actually do laundry in our house. We can, we don't have to hand wash our dishes. But imagine after a while, these are pretty normal things that you kind of just grow accustomed to them and you sort of, you lose appreciation. Oh, I forget, I don't have to scrape the ice off my windshield because it's in a garage. It's just normal. And I think something similar can happen with a passage like this that's so familiar to us that we just, we sort of lose, it brushes right off of us and we lose an appreciation for what's going on here. Or also, something that can happen here is we're so familiar with the details of the passage that we don't necessarily attend to, like, what's the point? What's the meaning of what's going on here? So, for example, if if someone was to... It's common when people get engaged for people to say, like, how did you propose? And say the the guy is explaining the story to you. Um, And let's say, for instance, that couple 
their first date was at a miniature golf course or something like that, where they're, and they, they've gone back to this miniature golf course, and it's, it's a really, uh, like, sentimental, significant thing in their relationship. So in proposing, he, he uses, like, a miniature golf club and, like, and, like, items from, from that sort of arena. And he's telling you these things, but you don't really have that background information. You'd hear that and you'd be like, that's kind of weird. Like, why would you do that? And I think a similar thing can happen when we read a passage like this, where if we just read it, and especially when we're so familiar, we're like, we don't even necessarily wonder, like, what's with the shepherds or what's with the manger? And we we can easily miss what's actually going on here. And so t- today, what I want us to do as we, there's a danger with a, such a familiar passage, I want us to take time to really think, what is going on in this passage, and what can we learn from it today? To take a moment to pause. So let's, let's go right into the story and hear uh, the account of Christ's birth as Luke tells it, tells it to us. So Luke chapter 2, verse 1, follow along with me. Luke tells us that in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. For the, for the purpose of taxing, everyone was to be registered. And this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went out to be registered. So, so each is going to his own town. Everyone has to go back to their town so they can count everyone up, so they can tax everybody. Verse 4, so Joseph also went from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Why? Because he was of the house of house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And so everyone's being registered. Mary and Joseph, they, they go to Bethlehem. And, and as many of us are familiar, the, the idea is Joseph would have to go to Bethlehem because that's where his ancestry was from. Um, or it actually could be that Joseph literally was from Bethlehem himself. Um, and the reason that they were in Nazareth was because we know that's where Mary was from. So in either case, Joseph is going back to Bethlehem for the sake of this registration. And Mary is traveling with, with child. And it's, it's, it's getting to that third trimester. It is, she is uber pregnant, okay? Because she's about to give birth. So she's making this journey. And they get, we get to verse 6 and we see what happens. So while they're there, the time comes for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. Well, why a manger? That's kind of bizarre because I guess there was no place for them in the inn. So, so you imagine this scene where everybody's got to come back to their, their town or their ancestral town and you can just imagine this, this, this place that everyone's packed. There's not a lot of room. And so the baby actually has to get placed in a manger because there's, there's no room in that, in that place. Verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them And they were filled with great fear, which is a pretty expected response. I mean, have you you ever been out outside where there's not a lot of lights? Like I'm from northern Wisconsin where you can find places where there's not a lot of city lights. I used to work at this camp where we'd go outside at night, uh, this big field. There's no lights anywhere. It's pitch black. You can't see the hand in front of your face. And you can picture a scene like that where these shepherds are doing their normal job and all of a sudden... 
This angel appears to them. Verse 9, an angel appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. I mean, that would be terrifying. And so, like in the previous passages with Mary and Zechariah, there's this response of fear when all of a sudden there's this angelic being that appears to you. You don't know what, why this angel is appearing to you. And so the angel says this in verse 10. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. This is how you're going to know who this child is. You're going to find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. And suddenly, it's not just one angel anymore, suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, literally the heavenly army. Armies that normally, we think of armies normally bringing destruction. This army is coming to announce good news. They're praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. That it, it only makes sense that as a, as the, as the savior, as this, as this king is born, that it would be accompanied by the host of heaven announcing and praising God. Not just a few angels, but you can imagine the shepherds just absolutely blown away. It's pitch black. They see an angel and not only one, but the entire sky is filled with them now. It's as if, it's as if God is saying, you know what, this isn't just some regular announcement. We gotta send the whole team in. Send all the angels to announce the birth of the Savior. Glory to God in the highest, they say. And so in verse 15, we continue. That, notice, that's not actually even the climax yet. Because there's more to the story. They're, they're told to go and find the baby. And so when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And when they went, and they went with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child, and all who, won, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, just as it had been told to them. And so the shepherds go and they find the baby and they report to those there. Apparently it seems like there's other people there as well. Because it says that, that all who heard it then wondered. And Mary, she's treasuring these things and pondering them. And the shepherds, the, the, the climax of the narrative here is now not just when the angels proclaim the, the glory of God, but when the shepherds actually then join the chorus of the angels. They've seen it and now they're praising God. And so what's the point of this passage if we can boil it down here? I think the point of this passage is that we are to give glory to God on account of the incarnation of Christ. Again, the point of this passage, it actually is not simply that the angels, you'd think it would be the angels' declaration. Like that is like a, a crazy scene, a bunch of angels showing up. But the point of the passage, the, the climax of the passage actually comes when the shepherds, they're not praising God yet out in the fields. They first go and see the child. 
And, and it's when they see the child that they join the chorus of the angels. And, and, and this is when the praise is also realized in the people who are there. And so we see all there who are they're wondering. Mary is treasuring these things. The shepherds themselves are infected with the praise of the angels. And so when the, when the shepherds go and they see the child, to them it's like confirmation of what, the, of what the angels told them. But you can also imagine it from Mary and Joseph and everyone else's perspective. That this would have been a confirmation to them. All of a sudden these shepherds show up and they start saying, this is what happened. We saw these angels. They told us, they told us this thing about a child in a manger, that he's, that he's the king from David's line, that he's the savior. And now we see him. What that would have meant to Mary and Joseph as well. What child is this? This is, this is no ordinary child. Something significant is happening here. And this is the response we see throughout the entire birth narrative. If you've been with us the last two weeks and into next week, at every point when, when the Gabriel appears to Mary, when, when he appears to Zechariah, in every case, the point of the passage seems to be that the people are responding with praise that something incredible is happening here. God is doing something incredible. And I think the takeaway that, is in, that we're intended to take from this is one that we should respond with praise as well. That when we realize as well that something significant is happening in the birth of Christ, that our response should be one of praise. Praise is due to God. We ought to praise God on account of the fact that He sent Christ. The incarnation, that is, God becoming flesh, incarnate, the incarnation exists for the redemption of men and women to the glory of God. And I think there's four reasons in particular, as we, as we take some time to focus in on this text, there's four reasons in particular that, that the passage gives us to praise God. Four reasons. The first we can find out by looking at the message of the angels. When we look at what the angels were delivering to, to the shepherds, we see that the first reason we praise God is that this one who is born is the Messiah. He is the anointed king from David's line. Look at verses 10 and 11 with me. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The Christ born in the city of David. Now around this time there was a, a document that we've now discovered uh, called the Prion Calendar Inscription. And this document, um, it, was, it was about Caesar Augustus who, if you notice at the very beginning of our passage, is, is mentioned. He's the one who put out the decree for the registration. It's about Caesar Augustus, and it's about his birth. And if you know anything about uh, Roman emperors, Caesars, they were conceived of as being a god. And so this calendar inscription is, is about the birth of Caesar, and in the inscription, this, this declaration they send throughout the empire, they say, Good news! Gospel, literally. The Caesar Augustus has been born, the birth of a God. And he is Savior of the region who will, bring, who will bring peace to the world. Language that is 
that is so familiar to or so similar to what Luke is saying here, is it not? And it seems that what Luke is doing is he's deliberately juxtaposing Caesar Augustus, who's mentioned previously at the very beginning of the passage, and his birth announcement as one who is savior, one who is king, born a god, to bring peace with the true Augustus, the true ruler of this world, who is Christ, the one born in a manger. That Christ is the true ruler of this world. That the rulers that exist out, that even today, are, are those that are appointed by the omnipotent child in a manger. And that his kingdom will supersede all other kingdoms. And what we see in this passage particularly is that his kingship is painted as the one from David's line. So we get the, we get language where Luke is purposefully dropping hints so we don't miss the point. You'll notice at the beginning in verse 4 that, that Luke makes clear that Jesus, his stepfather Joseph, is from David's line. That he said that he's from the house and lineage of David. And that's important because if you know your Old Testament, you know that, that from David's line, this Messiah, was, it was to come from David's line. He was promised to be from David's lineage. And it says specifically too in verse 4 and verse 11 that he's born in Bethlehem, the city of David. The city where David was from. David was from Bethlehem. Again, making that connection between Jesus and David. And, and the census, actually, by, by having the census and having Joseph then return to Bethlehem, where then Jesus is born in Bethlehem and not Nazareth, for example, has the effect of fulfilling Micah 5 too. Where Micah 5 2 says that the Messiah, this Davidic king, would be born in Bethlehem. And then, of course, in verse 11, the angels say that this one who is born is the Christ. The Greek word for Messiah, the anointed king. And this is exactly what Mary was told about him when, when, when Gabriel showed up to Mary. In verse, chapter 1, verse 31 and 33, if you look at those verses with me. Where Gabriel said this in chapter 1, verse 31 through 33. Behold, you are going to conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him, what? The throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will be, of his kingdom there will be no end. Or you can think about what Zechariah sang in his song in verse 69, that God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. And as you read the rest of the Gospel of Luke, remember, this, is, this isn't just a Christmas story. This is in the Gospel of Luke. And so as you were to read the rest of the Gospel of Luke, you, you understand now who this, who this Jesus figure is. He's the king. He's the one who, by nature of being conceived of a virgin by the Holy Spirit, is called the Son of the Most High. And so what does this mean, that, that Jesus was, would be the king from David's line? What would this have meant to someone in this context? And we can, we can see even just from the songs that surround, from Mary's song, from Zechariah's song, from Simeon's song. They sing about the fact that, that God is providing help and deliverance to Israel, that he's saving them from their enemies. And even the fact, as Zechariah says, that he, that he brings about the knowledge of forgiveness of sins. 
And when you think about the Old Testament and what the Old Testament was longing for in this coming Messiah was, was this person who would reinstate God's rule over Israel, deliver Israel, and save them from their sin and all of the consequences that resulted from it. And so we know Jesus, when he shows up on the scene, he says, Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God This rule of God is bursting in through my presence here. And oh, how we need that as well. How we need a ruler. How we need, in our salvation, we need someone who will reinstate God's rule in this world. In a world devastated by the disorder of sin. Someone who can take our own rebellion to God and by His Spirit reign in us, as we sang earlier, to make us, make us submissive to God's will. And so the first reason that we have reason to praise God is that this baby who is born is born the King from David's line. But we also learn something more by asking, so what sort of King is this King? What is, what is the character of this message, the nature of His kingship? What does this mean for us? And so secondly, we see that this king is also savior. He is also savior. The angels say, good news. Look at verse chapter 2, verse 10 and 11 with me again, where the angels say, fear not. I Behold, I bring you good news. Literally the word gospel. The mess, a message of salvation, as we say. Of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. Someone who will provide salvation. Someone who will provide rescue. This is the one who's going to bring your deliverance. In verse 11, there's this peculiar little phrase that we might just breeze over because we're familiar with it. But, it. but he says, the angel says, For unto you. For unto you. Now, when someone has a baby, you don't say normally, for unto you this baby was born. We would expect him to say, good news, for unto Mary and Joseph was born. But he says, for unto you, to the shepherds. Why? Because there's an understanding. This baby is born not just to Mary and Joseph, but he's born for others. He is the Savior, or even the fact that later the shepherds are going to praise God. They're going to go about praising God. Now, when, when people have babies, we normally, are, we normally find that exciting and, and a joyous thing, but I don't normally go around praising God when I find out a random person had a baby. Even the fact that they go about praising God, they understand something significant is happening here. Even the fact that they visit the scene of the birth. So Anne is due in March, and, and when, we, when Anne gives birth... I I don't expect random strangers to come into the room and visit us. And if so, I probably won't appreciate that and I'll ask them to leave. Okay, but here, it's so familiar, we just, we don't necessarily think about it, but these random shepherds are coming in and visiting the child. Why? Even that is, is illustrative of the fact that this baby exists, is born for others. And the angels, what do they announce in verse 14? Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom He's pleased. 
The message of this baby is one of, it's one that brings about peace. And we have to ask then, what sort of peace is in view here? It's common around the holidays. Everyone gets really uh, sentimental and nostalgic. And so everyone kind of has this sense of we all get along and there's a lot of peace among men and good tidings and all that sort of stuff. The holiday tranquility, we might call it. But we need a lot more than, that's, that's not going to get us very far. We need a lot more than that. Christ has come not only to reconcile us to God, but also to one another. But most importantly, He's come to reconcile us to God. That is the very heart of the Gospel, that Christ has come to provide us peace. That because of our sin, there's a rift between us. That, that the Bible actually describes, between us and God, that there's, the, the Bible actually says that we are the children of wrath. That we are the objects of God's wrath on account of His sin. And not because He's some mean, nasty guy, but in His righteousness, He rightly views our sin as something deserving wrath. But He is also gracious and loving. And in His grace, He has sent His Son to take on human nature, to embrace our predicament as human beings, to enter into our place, to take what we deserve, and to reverse our crimes and the guilt that we deserve on account of it, so that we can actually have the the, the judgment, the verdict from God in His judgment, that we are declared innocent, that we are declared righteous, And as Paul says in Romans 5, that having been justified by faith, not on account of anything that we do, but by trusting in Christ, by leaning on Christ, that faith and being justified, declared innocent, now what? We have peace with God. That the God with whom we were at once, we had enmity with and we were hostile to Him, we now have peace. As I was preparing this sermon, um, when, you're, when you're preparing sermons, it's, it's common, at least for me, I, I imagine for other people as well, you want to be able to say something that people maybe don't know or something that you guys might find interesting. And so when I was preparing the sermon, I was, you know, I was a little bit more excited about some of my other points. Like, oh, I can say this, and people, that might be interesting to folks. And when I got to this one about salvation, I was like, well, it feels kind of like, People know that. I wasn't as excited about it. I was like, okay, it's in there, so I want to talk about it. What a stupid thought. Seriously, what a stupid thought. God has provided salvation in Christ. And we, and we, just, we just roll over that like it's basic, like it's mundane. Let us never lose the joy that this baby in a manger was was born to provide us peace with God. That was not owed to us. And so, the angels say this is a gospel, good news of great joy. It should produce joy in us. The angels over here are losing their marbles praising God. And let's not ever let them have any more reason to praise than we do. Because Christ didn't even come to save them. He came to save us. We have way more reason to praise than even the angels. It's the, who are the recipients, as he says in verse 14? Those on whom he is pleased. Or as the NIV says very well and communicates well, it's those on whom God's favor rests. 
peace among those on whom God's favor rests. Not like God is pleased with us, like there's something good in us that he sees and he finds us pleasing because somehow we've earned his favor. The idea is we don't deserve it and he's showing us favor nonetheless. In other words, the incarnation is a demonstration of the grace of God. It's an exhibition of his undeserved favor towards us. And it's he, it's he who's taking the initiative. We're not taking the initiative like, oh God, I sense that we're at enmity. Anything I can do to make that up to you? Like, as Paul says, Christ died while we were enemies with God. He's the one taking initiative. He's the one showing favor to us. Thirdly, we see Christ's humble arrival. We see Christ's humble arrival, a third reason to praise God. When, when we look at the setting of Christ's birth, as, we, as you noticed, the word manger shows up three times. Manger, three times. So Luke is clearly trying to draw our attention to it. And the reason Christ is born in a manger, as it says um, earlier in the text, it says in verse 7, because there was no place in the inn. Now, there's a lot of discussion about where exactly Jesus was born. Um, and there's three main views. The, the most popular is that Jesus was born in a stable, which is, there's no stable mentioned in the passage, but we infer that from the fact that a manger is mentioned. And we assume, where are mangers? Mangers are like a feeding trough for animals. Well, that must be out in the stable. Um, and so we assume there's no room in like a hotel or something like that, and they had to go out to the stable. Um, another view is that, and this, this is not in the passage anywhere, this comes more from a tradition, is that Jesus was born in a cave. Um, and there's some reasons for believing that sometimes people dwelled in caves then. And so that's possible. The third, a third view, which is probably the most likely, is that this was, the word in is actually probably better translated as place where you stayed, or a, a living quarter, or a guest room, or something like that. And how it was set up in those days is you'd have a house where there'd be like this area where people would sleep and stay. And at night, you would bring the animals into the house um, because it was cold. And they would have, you'd have the mangers actually in the house. So we assume, when we hear manger, we assume it's outside of the house. But for them, they had mangers in the house. And so you can imagine this scene where there's tons of people in the house. Everyone's coming for this registration. And all of a sudden, Mary starts having contractions. And that's not a lot of place to have a baby so they're going down, there's no room in the living quarters, so they're going down to the main area to have a baby. In either case, it doesn't necessarily make a whole lot of difference because in all of those situations, Jesus is being born into a very ordinary, humble, lowly, if not bizarre, setting. So for example... I'm not very good at celebrity stuff. I don't really know that stuff. But I do know that when babies are born to the royal family in England, okay, so I had to look this up. It is Prince William and Kate Middleton, okay? When they had their baby, Charles, um, everyone was, you had all these, they, they walked out and they're like showing the baby and there's like a, a line of people taking pictures and, and there's tabloids everywhere. Like that's what you expect when a baby is born, born. You expect people to issue these declarations that go across the empire and all this fantastic stuff. And what we see here is simply the Lord of the universe take on human form, laying in a manger because there's not enough room for him elsewhere. The humble nature of his birth. And this is, this is parabolic. This is uh, illustrative of the whole nature of Christ's kingship, is it not? 
Where Christ, as he says in Mark 10.45, that he has not come to, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so we get this juxtaposition between Caesar Augustus, this, this ruler who's exerting authority and he's issuing decrees and everyone's obeying to his will and bending to his will. And then Christ, the true king of the universe, lowly and born in a manger. It's characteristic of the incarnation itself, whereas as we read in Philippians 2, that Christ, though being in the very form of God, he did not account equality with God a thing to be held on to, but emptied himself, made himself of, of, of no report, taking on very human nature. Or as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, he says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, though he had equality with God and all those privileges, that he became poor for our sake. He became a human being so that by his poverty, by his incarnation, by his becoming human and taking our place, we might become rich. And so the very setting of Jesus' birth is like an illustration of everything that he's about. He comes to serve. He comes in humility. His whole life, at his birth, there's no place for him to lay his head. And as he says in his ministry, foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. All the way to the point of humbling himself to the very cross, the very, the, the worst form of execution in the Roman Empire. And he did this for us. We have reason to praise. Fourth and lastly, we see those to whom he, the, the, the message is given. And it's to all people. We see that the message is first delivered, delivered to shepherds. It's delivered to shepherds. And we want to ask, well, why is that significant? And if, and if maybe you've heard this before, but shepherds were sort of, sort of the nobodies of society. Okay, so oftentimes given the contact that they had with different animals and such, they couldn't participate in the, uh, the temple system. And even we, we have reason to believe that their testimony wouldn't have been accepted in court. So shepherds were from, they're, they're the bottom of society, they're the nobodies, they're, they're, they're less than nobodies. It'd be like today, if, if, if Christ was born today, or, or some great announcement was today, and, and we ran into a coffee shop, and, and we declared it to the baristas. Now, not, nothing against being a barista, um, but like, that's not really who you expect to announce a king's birth to, okay? Or for all of us here, probably. Most of us have jobs that you wouldn't expect this to be announced to. You don't expect to, you wouldn't expect this announcement to go to, to, let's think of some of our jobs here, a physical therapist, a truck driver. Again, not there's anything wrong with those jobs, but the point is, these are ordinary folks. In fact, they're less than ordinary folks. And what do they say? They say in verse 15, which the Lord has made known to us. Verse 17, they repeat this. The saying which had been told to them. Verse 20, as it had been told to them. There's this repeated theme. It was made known to these shepherds. The idea of grace, it's revealed to the outcast, to the ordinary. And again, this is, this too is parabolic and illustrative of the very gospel itself. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, consider your calling. 
Not many of you were wise by human standards or noble or, or powerful by human standards. But God did this. God has chosen us, the shepherds, so to say, the spiritual shepherds, if we will, to display His grace and the wonder of His Gospel. And so as Jesus says in Luke 5, He says, I didn't come to call the righteous, to, to those who think that they're righteous, to those who think that they have a, a good standing with God already. I came to call the sinners to repentance. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Matthew 5. Blessed are those who are broken in their spirit, who know their need for me. For theirs is the kingdom of God. In this way, we're all like shepherds. We're all the unexpected, undeserved recipients of God's grace. And so as the angel says in verse 10, that this is, this is a message that will be, notice in verse 10, that will be for all people. For all types of people. And the shepherds are just a demonstration of that fact. He's telling this to shepherds. Case in point. And as we see throughout the Bible, this is exactly what we see as, 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 Jesus, as Jesus gathers a band of followers. He's gathering fishermen. Eventually Gentiles are brought in. These non-Jewish people you wouldn't expect. And, and Paul says that in Christ there's no male nor female, nor no slave or free. It's a group of all peoples. And then he even tells us that our mission as a church is to go to all peoples. To spread the gospel to all nations. And do we really believe that? Do we really believe this about the baby in the manger? I, was, I, was, I saw a trailer for some Christian documentary. I don't remember what it was about. That didn't stand out to me. But there was this guy who was interviewed in the trailer who wasn't a believer and came, became a believer in his adulthood. And, he, and when he became a believer, he decided he was going to become a missionary. And he made this point, he, he raised this question, he's like, if I truly believe this, how can I not dedicate my life to, to spreading that gospel? How can I not dedicate my life to following him? And I think that's a great question for us that when we approach Christmas season. Do we really believe this about the baby in the manger? And if so, how can we not serve him? If, if a celebrity or of some sort was to come to Milwaukee, um, let's, say, let's say for some of us that might be Aaron Rodgers, we'd like to meet him, or for some of us maybe it's a singer or a politician that we like, and they, come, they were to come to our area, and, and they're doing a speech or something like that, and they called you out, and they, and they, they went to your house, and they, they got together with you, and, and they're spending all this time with you. This is something totally unexpected. What would most of us do? We'd be Instagramming it. We'd be Facebooking it. We'd be telling all of our friends. This would blow us away. How much more the fact that God has visited us, He has actually visited us in Christ, the King of the universe, our Savior, to shepherds, to us, we have reason to praise God. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would use your word this morning to revive our souls, cause our hearts to rejoice. That as we walk away this morning, we would feel afresh the wonder of what it is that you have sent Christ to become a human being for all eternity, for us, and for our salvation. It's in his name that we praise him, and in his name that we pray. Amen.